She's a former public school teacher turned stay-at-home mom. He's a talk show host who's made a career covering politics from afar. Now, Christine Stegall and her husband Chris have chosen a new path forward for their child in Christian education. Join them as they explore and experience this important alternative in education for the first time. Welcome to Making the Leap. You know, at our church, we have uh, we have a preschool and daycare, uh, so we have about 50, 50 plus students that are here, uh, and and we take that very seriously. It's not just uh, uh, this isn't just um, uh, it's not only just a ministry to help parents. We see our job is to be training and shaping the next generation. I think it starts at these younger ages. Welcome in to this edition of Making the Leap. Thanks a lot for subscribing to this, never missing it, making it a point, sharing it with other people. We had one of our biggest months ever we did. in the month of April, thanks to your support. And your five-star yeah. reviews and your written reviews are always huge. Um, if you can pause this and then scroll all the way down to the menu, uh, yeah. the bottom of the menu of shows at Apple Podcasts, and give this a written review and a five-star review, that helps us immeasurably. Same with Spotify, give it a five-star review. But uh, we welcome you in today for a great conversation with a gentleman called Lucas Miles. He's a pastor out of Indiana, and he's written mm-hmm. a couple of great bestsellers. He does some fantastic work uh, in the podcast and digital space as well. A couple of books called The Christian Left and Woke Jesus. I had a conversation with him on our radio show, yeah. and it went very well. And I said, you know, my wife, Christine, and I do this separate podcast about Christian education, and I'd like to talk to you about maybe uh, exploring the conversation about pastors and churches and their role mm-hmm. in Christian education and developing it. So. That's coming up, but we've got a lot of stories in front of us today to tackle. Let's start there. (laughs) We do. Well, one thing that, I mean, we talk about this multiple times every throughout, you know, throughout all these different episodes where different states are moving towards school choice in some form or another. Um, And the one that I've noticed this last week, which surprised me, frankly, um, but it said that a poll, this is out of the Center Square. Um, I pulled it from Reed Lyon, coming from the Center Square. Poll finds most Illinois residents support school choice. Hmm. And I thought that was very surprising given I'm from Illinois. Um, It's not generally uh, a conservative uh, bastion of thought where I think some of that comes from. However, it has some big cities with, I think, some big educational problems in them. And I think that's probably where it comes from. But it says more than six out of every 10 voters support a system that includes school choice with nearly 70% of parents um, taking that position. And I, I, that really just blew my mind. And they have something called the Invest in Kids Tax Credit Scholarship Program. It's the only school choice option, and it is going to expire at the end of the year. So I think there's a big push going through that. And I, I was so glad, and it was interesting too, coming off last month when we spoke with Kristen out of Illinois, who basically helped start this homeschool co-op that my sister is part of. Mm -hmm. And we had a really great um, response from Illinois last month. And so I was was like, wow, well, this ties together really well. It's interesting, Illinois in the news over the last couple of weeks, too, because Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, Mm -hmm. the outgoing mayor of Chicago, who just lost her election to somebody, I think, even more progressive, if you can believe that. But um, at any rate, um, she's now on a revisionist history tour along right. with Randy Weingarten yes. of the parent, uh, or the, the what do they call themselves, the Federation American Federation of Teachers yes. or whatever, um, and Fauci. They're all on this revisionist history trip of we didn't recommend schools be we closed. We never said this. Yeah, we never um, went back. It was a mistake. Yes. Our kids have been set back. Isn't it interesting how they're all so uh, contritious and 
Um, and no apologies out None. of any of them for well, they anything. They deny that Randy that Weingarten specifically denies that she even suggested yes. schools be closed, which is absurd. No, and I am almost positive we should go back, and I should we should go back and find the episode where I know we specifically talked about her yep. when she was putting out some of her different tweets and some of her comments. But uh, it, yeah, Illinois is uh, uh, one of those states. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago, and now it's getting a lot of national traction. The Shawnee Mission District, the Shawnee Mission School District on out the Kansas, Kansas. side. Mm-hmm. And a teacher who has spoken out, getting what she knew would be uh, backlash from her colleagues right. in, in I, I, probably teachers' unions. I, I would doubt it's her. I don't know. You tell me. Like, if you had a colleague in a public school who wrote a column like we read a couple of weeks ago, which was uh, Kansas public school teacher says, yes, children are being indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. She we read it a couple of episodes ago. But uh, she says one teacher referred to me as a Nazi for disagreeing. No ideological diversity, no substantial counter-argument allowed. It's wreaking havoc on morale. But the, the biggest killer, a couple of lines in this piece was, our district is no longer academically focused. Right. We're doing our students a disservice by allowing a biased curriculum to take over. If parents knew what goes on in our schools, the majority would be appalled. I, I don't know, when you were teaching, a fellow teacher writes something like this and it goes nationwide, what would your reaction be, <laughs> do you think? Well, I guess it would depend on what side of the issue I fall on, right? Like, I I think I'd be, I would not want that negative attention coming to my district. Um, I would not want the negative attention coming saying that we are no longer academically focused. And I do remember a lot of trainings that were um, slanted in that direction, in this DEI direction, which is so prominent now, but it wasn't, it wasn't so over the top that it had to be completely focused on. However, um, when people want to come out and say something negative about a school district, it it really does reflect negatively on everybody. However, if is teachers aren't speaking right, but if teachers aren't speaking up about what is happening, that is a, that is happening. That is true. What do you do? So it is. I think she's saying this is true. And in fact, there have been follow up articles saying she wasn't. She's not lying. She's not making this up. No. And that's embarrassing. If you have an academic team in place or you know an administrative team in place and that's supposed to be a great school district and to be called out for not being academically focused that instead you're focused on being completely divisive in every way possible they have a real problem and I give her a lot of credit because I think it would be a very lonely place to be that teacher saying and writing the things she did because she's already obviously experiencing um Alienation. Hey, right. I was going to say like isolation, but alienation no. is the better word. Yeah. Um, here's another headline related. Schools are ditching homework and deadlines in favor of equitable grading. This from the Wall Street Journal. Las Vegas high school teacher Laura Penrod initially thought the grading changes at her district made sense. Under the overhaul, students are given more chances to prove they've mastered a subject without being held to arbitrary deadlines in recognition of challenges some kids have outside school. Uh, They're relying on children having intrinsic motivation, and that's the furthest thing from the truth for this age group, says Ms. Penrod, a a teacher of 17 years. The Clark County District, where she works, the nation's fifth largest school system in the country, has joined dozens of districts in California, Iowa, Virginia, and other states in moves toward equitable grading with varying degrees of buy-in. Leaders of the 305,000 student Clark County District said the new approach was about making grades a more accurate reflection of a student's progress and giving opportunities to all learners. Equitable grading can take different forms, but the system aims to measure whether a student 
knows the classroom material by the end of a term without penalties for behavior, which under the theory can introduce bias. Homework is typically played down. Students are given multiple opportunities to complete tests and assignments. Proponents of the approach, including paid consultants, say it benefits students with after-school responsibilities like jobs or caring for siblings, as well as those with learning disabilities. Traditional grading methods, they say, favor those with stable home lives and more hands-on parents. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in traditional, there. Listen to that. Traditional grading methods, they say, favor those with a stable home life and more hands-on parents. Well... I yeah. I mean, isn't that what we're talking about? Is being hands on, hands on in our parenting, and and look, then doing away with the system that helps to support that. I yeah. Guess, so in, also. in in it it's catch twenty two. I in theory I agree with approaching this sort of monolithic grading system differently. I think sure. that's I think that's well, what homeschooling's about. Well, and that's one thing that I well I actually picked up on a few keywords. One thing that I do agree with. Um, that I, I would not even say is necessarily in, um, it's not a public versus private school type thing. Mastery of the information of the education, you know, that should be the goal. And sometimes it does take kids longer than others to figure it out. So to be penalized because you didn't understand the material on Tuesday, um, but you do understand it the following week because you went back and you reviewed, you know, retaking tests, uh, those kinds of things, I... I see the value in that, not saying every time, every situation is the same. I think a lot of this is subjective. I do believe in that. And I, you know, again, to a point, I think that's important. But that is, you're right, what homeschooling is about, looking at non-traditional methods of education. That is what that is about. Here's more. Equitable grading still typically awards A through Fs, but the criteria is overhauled. Homework, in-class discussions, and other practice work which is called formative assessments, right. are weighted at between 10% and 30%. So the bulk of a grade is earned through what we know as summative assessments, mm -hmm. such as tests or essays. Right. Uh, extra credit is banned. No more points for bringing in school supplies, as in grading for behavior, which includes habits like attendance. The scale starts right. at 49 or 50 rather than zero. That's meant to keep a student's grade from sinking too low for missed assignments. Right. And they feel they can't recover, and they just give up. So a student is not permitted to drop below 50 yeah, because half of it is just built in as a safeguard. I, so students cannot sink. Yeah. Students will not be allowed to sink. Now, again, again, there, there can be some – there is a little bit of validity, a little bit of validity, but at some point – you know, then you cr come to a place of what is, when is it too much? When do you give so much that there's no learning going on? And when you're starting to say that behavior does not matter, yes, it does. Uh -huh. um, behavior totally matters. Yeah. And the refusal to participate, uh, I, that is when none of those things should apply to you whatsoever. I mean, we, I, I know our middle son was telling me about a student in one of his classes who sits in class every day, hood up, doesn't do it. Now, we also have a son who doesn't want to do work on occasion. You know, he doesn't want to sit there and do it. He wants to do it on his time in his way. Um, that's not how school is set up. Like you, there, you know, you can't, you can't accommodate for 
every single homeschool situation. Homeschool could be set up that way. But homeschool could, sure. You want to do your homework at midnight? You want to turn in at the very last minute? 100%. Go right ahead. See, but that's, that's not here. I think the reason I'm sharing this is because what they're advocating for is actually, they're, they're, they're advocating they're for individual, individual learning. learning mm-hmm. And that's yep. wonderful. But yep. I don't think a public school system... It's not set up for can that. Can achieve individual learning. No. I think that's the whole problem with the, no. the and, concept of public education. And there's room for the conversation. I think that's what we're, we're trying to keep saying, you know, that what we're saying a lot. There's room for the conversation. Um, if you don't have a great test taker, why should they be penalized? But again, you know, all the time because they have to have all this knowledge for one big test, like the summative and formative assessments, you know, when you should be looking at the daily work, daily progress, you know, that kind of thing. I think... I think you're right. That is what we're saying is that we should be looking at kids as individuals and not as these big group think mentality or, you know, looking at it with group think mentality where everything has to work for everyone. As always, follow the money. Districts using equitable grading are being trained by a gentleman named Joe Feldman. I love that there's one guy in Oakland, California. He's a former teacher and administrator who wrote a 2018 book on grading for equity the book's concepts build on research into mastery or standards-based learning. Albuquerque Public Schools signed a contract with Mr. Feldman last year and his Slide. new way of grading. <laughs> you want to guess how much the I was just going to ask, how much does he get? Um, guess? I'm going to guess. Let's see. Based on what I know, the DEI instructor... Like, By the way, this is to support 200 teachers in a two-year pilot program. Oh, pilot program. A pilot also program, keyword. two mm-hmm. years. This man was signed to Albuquerque Public Schools. I'm going to say... 200 teachers. I'm going to say... Uh, $300,000. Higher. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, let's go, let's go f- 450. Higher. I can't even stop it. Over a million or over half a million. Yep. I, I don't even know what that is then. <laughs> 750, 750,000. Uh, little or $687,000. $687,000 this one man made from one Albuquerque School District for a two-year <laughs> pilot program to teach 200 students. How? And yet we also then, in some of those same districts, I'm sure, there's all kinds of conversation about the lack of funding yeah, and Mr. lack of support. Mr. Feldman has worked with around 50 public school districts since 2013, Chicago, L.A., New York, and smaller districts throughout California, Minnesota, and elsewhere. Interest grew during the pandemic. I'm sure. (laughs) Classrooms are pressure cookers with daily deadlines. Cheating off classmates can be ubiquitous. They're now able to relax and say, I can have a bad day and spend more time on things. It changes the way the classroom feels. Well, I could have told them that and they could have given me half a million dollars and that would have been fine. That's that's crazy, especially when all those districts that you just listed, I bet have all had studies come out one after another about the state of kids and where they're at. So obviously those things that he's putting into place or advocating for are not helping. This guy is making millions of dollars from school districts to tell them that students learn individually. Right. Well, we're not, we're, what, what are we doing Hello. wrong? What are we doing right. wrong? Um, so that's uh, in the Wall Street Journal if you want to read it. Schools are ditching homework deadlines in favor of equitable grading. That is an April 26th story. Let me Go back to a month prior, and I think we talked about this in a previous show, Mm -hmm. COVID's education crisis, a lost generation. Uh, This is from CBS News. It may look like the pandemic is over. Stadiums open again, crowds everywhere, not not a mask in sight. But COVID hurt a lot of things you can't easily see, especially in schools. 
When it comes to how the pandemic affected education, the news was surprising, definitely not in a good way. We've got data now. Things are bad. They're actually worse than most of us thought, said this individual called Jeffrey Canada. In fact, I would tell you we have an education crisis. The numbers vary by community, but according to a nationwide test given to fourth through eighth graders, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, reading skills have dropped to the lowest point in 30 years. Math, nearly 40% of eighth graders couldn't understand basic concepts. That's the worst performance since testing began in 1969. It, I would love to go back and find these people. Who, CBS News. Oh, it's a cry. We've really set kids back a generation. Well, that's what I mean. I Randy would love Weingarten. to go back and find these same people, yeah. like you just said. What were they saying in 2020, June of 2020, May of 2020, back in 20, you know, the fall of 2020? What were they busy advocating for? Because I know when I was on sites and I was watching what teachers were saying, a lot of them, the ones that were vocal, very much didn't want to be back in school. And yet now, I bet they're all commenting left and right on how far state tests have shown that kids are, like like it said, like the decrease in performance and the decrease in mastery or even nearing proficiency um, have probably gone down. I'd love to go back and... Doesn't it make you wish? I wish I'd screenshotted a whole lot more back back then because I I just it's it makes me mad because we are there is some vindication in some of this, but it's at the expense it makes me mad. It's at the expense of all these kids that are sitting there and now we're gonna have experts come in who are gonna start getting hundreds of thousands of dollars when we could have stopped this back even just even just these last few years. I mean, I know we're talking about other issues that have been piling up for years and years, but even these last three years could have been altered dramatically, but there was such a lack of common sense. And so now they're going to come in and throw things, throw programs in, pilot programs that are going to uproot teachers' lives even more than they already are being uprooted and probably not without, with not with a whole lot of results. One more, uh, and then I'll stop if you have something else to add. No, From the yeah. New York Post and it's related. Why aren't governors using millions in COVID funds for students? Repeat that. Why aren't governors using millions in COVID funds for students? The lingering impact of COVID school closures All that money. for 55 million children is clear. They're scholastically compromised, prone to higher levels of anxiety, and their futures are uncertain. Students today are 15 to 24 weeks behind where they should be for their age groups, according to the new data that I just referenced. Perhaps most worrisome of all, there is clear evidence that low-income students were the hardest hit. Back during COVID's early days, the federal government approved $200 billion, with a B, $200 billion in school-age assistance across three uh, legislative bills in 2020 and 2021. Mm -hmm. A deep dive into the data around those bills reveals that huge chunks of funds have failed to reach kids most in need. This is the finding of a new report from the National Opportunity Project. After months of public records requests, mm -hmm. back and forth conversations, blah, 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 we identified, they at the New York Post, identified $736 million in federal funding that never reached K-12 through schools and students through the Emergency Assistance for Non-Public Schools Program. Uh, that was established in late 2020 to dole out $5.5 billion of that $200 billion in independent, private, and non-public schools. And where did it go? Like if it didn't get into the programs that were supposed to kind of help, you know, bolster some of these um, kids and kind of bridge those gaps, where did it go? I I do know there were a lot of requests. Those you know, um, 
requests sent in trying to figure out to follow follow that money. I know in the district that we were in, that was a big topic because we knew the district was receiving money. We couldn't figure out where it was going. And that was really frustrating. And that, again, that is a leadership. That is such a leadership issue. It is a myth that non-public schools only serve affluent families and were minimally affected by COVID. In reality, nearly every private and parochial school is home to low-income students and families. And just like their public counterparts, non-public schools weathered government-imposed shutdowns, learning and job losses, and severe illness. But owing to political horse trading and confusing uh, legalese, federal emergency aid slated to benefit low-income students at non-public schools now risks turning into slush funds to cover pet proje- projects of wily state governors. And this goes on. But anyway, I, I, the point is... Um, Obviously, we never should have closed right. schools. Uh, all of the fraudulent money that was slushing around to help these kids in need and keeping them out of school didn't it's reach them to begin not with. Not even there, right. Um, and, and now as kids are reconvening and they're way behind, this guy's making fat Jack running around right. telling everybody, hey, let's let's stop testing them right. and let's stop. Uh, yeah, it, it, and we have teacher comments few and far between that are actually speaking up and saying what's actually happening yeah, in school districts. That's right. And, and, and the teachers that are working there, some are popping up and saying we're a DEI madhouse. Yeah. I, I would also just throw in, uh, there's a video worth watching if you haven't. Yes. Uh, John, I don't know if we can edit this in. I hope we can. Yeah. I, I think we probably can. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a a kid, he's 12 years old, named Liam Morrison. I sent yes. this to you. Oh, I, I listened multiple times with tears in my eyes because it was heartbreaking to hear. Middleborough, Massachusetts kid named Liam uh, Morrison. He's 12 years old, and he went before his school board after they threw him out of school for wearing a shirt that said there are only two genders. Yeah. He delivered this passionate speech, and we'll play it for you mm-hmm. here. It's a couple minutes long. He spoke before his school board, and like you, it... It was inspiring in one sense. He was an articulate kid with a lot of mm-hmm. presence, and he's obviously bold and brave. Right. But doesn't it make you livid oh. that we have to make our 12-year-olds right. speak that before school boards? That we even have boards? to do that. That's awful that any kid would even have to be in a position to sit there <laughs> and have to face two adults, call a parent, talk to the school board. He's 12. I know what our boys were doing at 12, and it was not rallying people to their side while they spoke at school board meetings. It's depressing and infuriating. But yes, I I love that he has that capacity and that composure to to speak that way, but my heart broke for him that not only him but kids around him like he says in the video, you'll hear it. You know, kids were coming up to him saying, "I like your shirt." Yeah. Like, "Thank you for, you know, what are we doing that that is where we were at with 12-year-olds and 11-year-olds? So, yeah, let's listen to the video here for a second, and then um, we'll, we'll comment on the backside. Hello. Good evening. My name is Liam Morrison. I live a- I'm in the 7th, 10th grade at Nichols Middle School. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today. I never thought that the shirt I wore to school on March 21st would lead me to speak with you today. On that Tuesday morning, I was taken out of gym class to sit down with two adults for what turned out to be a very uncomfortable talk. I was told that people were complaining about the words on my shirt, that my shirt was making some students feel unsafe. Yes, words on a shirt made people feel unsafe. They told me that I wasn't in trouble, but it sure felt like I was. I I was told that I would need to remove my shirt before I could return to class. When I nicely told them that I didn't want to do that, 
They called my father. Thankfully, my dad supported my decisions and came to pick me up. What did my shirt say? Five simple words. There are only two genders. Nothing harmful, nothing threatening. Just a statement I believe to be a fact. I have been told that my shirt was targeting a protected class. Who is this protected class? Are their feelings more important than my rights? I don't complain when I see pride flags and diversity posters hung throughout the school. Do you know why? Because others have a right to their beliefs just as I do. Not one person, staff, or student told me that they were bothered by what I was wearing. Actually, just the opposite. Several kids told me that they supported my actions and that they wanted one too. I experienced, wait a moment. I was told that the shirt was a disruption to learning. No one got up and stormed out of class. No one burst into tears. I'm sure I would have noticed if they had. I experience disruptions to my learning every day. Kids acting out in class are a disruption, yet nothing is done. Why do the rules apply to one, yet not another? I feel like these adults were telling me that it wasn't okay for me to have an opposing view. Their arguments were weak, in my opinion. I didn't go to school that day to hurt feelings or cause trouble. I have learned a lot from this experience. I learned that a lot of other students share my view. I learned that adults don't always do the right thing or make the right decisions. I know that I have a right to wear those five, a shirt with those five words. Even at 12 years old, I have my own political opinions and I have a right to express those opinions. Even at school, this right is called the First Amendment to the Constitution. My hope in being here tonight is to bring the school committee's attention to this issue. I hope that you will speak up for the rest of us so we can express ourselves without being pulled out of class. Next time, it may not only be me. There might be more students that decide to speak out. Thank you for your time and good night. Yeah, it's I, I like I want to be inspired and I want to cheer and I want to yeah. say good for the kid, but right. it's it's just well, enraging that the kid right. has to do it. You want to be inspired. You want to be encouraged when your kid gets up and makes a student council speech, or when they, um, I don't know. We've loved watching kids in their capacity in, in different events at school say a prayer with a room full of yeah. 20, 30, 50 people. That's that's where I think we should be focusing our our admiration. Not that a kid has to say there are only two genders. He's called aside, and now here we are with 12-year-olds saying things that adults are afraid to say. I think that's where I really, I, I did hear it. With, I was listening with tears, and I just thought, we have adults that are afraid to do those things. Yeah. And that, I think, is actually the the bigger problem you cannot put your kid on a bus and send him or her off to school for eight hours and ignore this anymore you can't do it and we, good for him we that don't he have the luxury to could ignore recognize this stuff. it right teachers are sounding the alarm students mm -hmm. are sounding the alarm uh these stories of right. all of this money sloshing around enriching yeah. people uh, over nonsense we we can't ignore what's obvious we just can't right there's there i don't know i i hate lecturing and I, I really <laughs> thundered away about this on my radio oh, show yeah okay um and you know it makes some people mad because i get emails from people you know who don't listen to this show mm -hmm. but who listen to my radio show and they're like you know chris i you know you're not you're not being fair i talk to my kids every day i have an open dialogue with mm -hmm. my kids every day and i just say respectfully you have no idea what your kids are being subjected mm -hmm. to eight hours a day. Right. Even if you have a great relationship with your kid what he or she don't doesn't tell you right i mean as that boy just said in the video I I go to school and I don't like the rainbow flags right. and all the propaganda, right. but I don't complain. Right. That's my point. That's right. These kids are not coming home and telling you all the things no. they're being they're being thrown in their face that they just have to swallow. Yeah. 
No, they're not telling you. It's problematic. It's more than problematic, yeah. and it's it is good to see it coming. You know, continuing to to be out there. I just hate that it has to be done at the expense of a kid's childhood. So let's turn the and conversation over to Lucas Miles. I met uh, Lucas Miles on my radio show. I've talked with him a couple of different times. He's a brilliant guy, a pastor out of Indiana. He's uh, written some great books, one called The Christian Left. We talked last year. Uh, This year he's got a brand new one uh, already taken off like a rocket called Woke Jesus. Uh, He's also been a part of something that interested me, and we didn't focus as much on the radio show, but I do want to talk about it here a little bit, called The American Pastor Project. Lucas Miles, welcome to Making the Leap, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Glad to have you today. Uh, Let's start with uh, Woke Jesus, your latest book. What is, uh, I think we can kind of guess what that might mean, (laughs) but uh, talk to us about it. We got a lot of good uh, people of faith in this audience who would be interested, I know, to hear what you've written. So yeah, the the subtitle of the book, it's, it's Woke Jesus, the False Messiah Destroying Christianity. And, and it is, it's very much that. I, I really set out to write what I would hope would become uh, sort of a definitive guide to understanding the impact and the dangers of progressive Christianity and progressive theology and how it is shaping the modern church, I believe, in really some negative ways. So I start with sort of a historical deep dive uh, in the first several chapters uh, to really catch people up on the um, uh, how progressive thought has invaded the church over the last several centuries, really. And then we get into a lot of modern uh, implications of wokeism uh, and how that's affecting Christianity and our view of Christ. And then uh, the, the, the kind of the second half of the book really drives towards comparing and contrasting uh, this woke ideology with biblical thought, ultimately sort of culminating in uh, a quest for what I call the biblical Christ, uh, as opposed to the woke Jesus that we're being presented by the world. Lucas, the church you pastor in Indiana, or any churches that you know, um, as you realize this is a podcast that we direct toward folks who are exploring maybe leaving public education, getting into a homeschool, a pod school, maybe a private Christian school education. What do you think the role of your church or any church or or pastors, those who lead churches, what's the role in your view of uh, shepherding the flock of K through 12th graders um, through maybe a Christian-themed education, if that's what you'd like to call it. Yeah, I think this is a uh, a topic that is, you know, really paramount in importance, and I think it's only becoming more and more important every single day. Unfortunately, like so many issues of the last several decades, I think the church is a bit behind where it needs to be um, in the in the process of realizing their role and realizing the danger of what's out there and addressing it. Um, you know, at our church, we have, uh, we have a preschool and daycare, uh, so we have about 50-plus 50, 50 students that are here, uh, and, and we take that very seriously. It's not just, uh, uh, this isn't just, um, uh, it's not only just a ministry to help parents where they, you know, can, can you know, kind of, uh, 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 you know, organize their families and make sure that they can still go to work and these different things. It's not just daycare. We see our job as really training and shaping the next generation. I think it starts at these younger ages. Uh, I think for, for churches that are able, um, I think there's a big need right now for, uh, for you know, churches to get involved in um, you know, Christian education, classical education, uh, and, and as we have more issues with, with public schools, uh, with school boards, we've all heard the horror stories around the country, and wokeism, critical race theory, 
you know, uh, 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 DEI, that has invaded our schools. Uh, here in Indiana, we actually just had a story came out. It was uh, that Fox News played it, uh, covered it uh, on a national level, where there was about six or seven schools where an undercover video had gone in. Uh, they were they were asking administrators and and higher level educators at a at a high school level if uh, about critical race theory, and in all of these videos, it came out that hey, we're still teaching critical race theory. We're still teaching uh, you know sort of this this uh, uh, equity over equality. Um, uh, ideology, but we have to call it different things. And they were sugarcoating mm-hmm. it, coding it and talking about how they were being deceptive towards parents. And this is a national story. And this is Indiana. We're a super majority conservative state. And I would tell you, if that's happening in Indiana, it's happening across the country, especially in our blue states. And so parents have to wake up to this and the church has to wake up and really see our role in, first of all, being a voice to, to the community for, for truth in these issues. And then when necessary, stepping up to the plate to offer, I believe, alternative solutions and supporting families uh, that, that are offering alternative solutions for their children uh, to ensure that they can get a solid education, you know, built on Western values with a Judeo-Christian framework uh, uh, that's going to, you know, create students uh, um, that, that, that are going to not just be great citizens, but they're going to actually know the Lord as well. So to to kind of branch off that, we had a guest um, probably, I, I guess it was back in December. Her name was Amber Pike, and she was talking with us a little bit about this, you know, the kind of this woke ideology, this progressivism that is happening across the board in churches, specifically with regards to youth programs, uh, Sunday school programs, where they were evaluating curriculum that was being used and finding that a huge percentage of it, like kind of in a 50 to 60 percentage of it, or percentage points of it were um, leaning into the progressive realm, not not biblical, not biblically based at all. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit to that, because I know there are parents that think, well, okay, I've got my kid in this public school, but we send him or her to youth group and we're, he, you know, we're in church and we're doing this. But the, the youth and the educate the elementary programs sometimes are not valid at all in terms of biblical information. I think this is such an overlooked um, phenomenon that's happening in our culture today that we are missing the idea uh, uh, or really the, the fact that there has been an infiltration even within Christian publishing. So it's not just that uh, public schools are you know, presenting these ideas, it's also that we have, you know, now Christian, you know, programs that are, um, uh, and, and really publishers uh, that are, you know, have been infiltrated, and they're starting to create material that um, is, is woke. And they have Sunday school material and curriculum that's going out to churches, and it is, um, you know, it's, it's literally, you know, laced with this sort of underlying liberation theology Marxist doctrine uh, that's worked its way into this Christian messaging, and it's I think it's slowly you know distorting the faith and and really you know setting people up for uh, whether they realize it or not being indoctrinated by Wilkins. So yeah, painful painful follow up question: Can you assess, Pastor? Are churches leading the schools, or are schools leading the churches these days when it comes to our youth? So I think that um, I think to some degree. Um, I, I think that there maybe even is another, uh, a third option there. Okay. And I think that there is a greater agenda 
And the way that I describe this is the left has recognized that, and when I say the left, I'm not just talking about, I'm not, I'm not saying Democrats versus Republicans. Mm-hmm. I, I think in actuality, we have very few traditional Democrats that are left in public office. Sure. Um, I think that, you know, traditional Democrats, uh, um, you know, Democratic Party is, is not the issue. What we're facing today is a Marxist infiltration yes. of the Democratic yeah. Party yeah. and in some cases of conservatives as well. This is this is, you know, this is something that I believe Republicans and Democrats should be able to unite against Marxism and socialism and communism in this country. It, we, we know even if we have dif- disagreements about different policies as Americans, we should be able to unite against a socialist structure. When you look at socialism, it's responsible for over 100 million deaths in the last 100 years. It should be pretty easy for every American to go, no, we don't want that in our country. But yet we have people that have been indoctrinated by this ideology. And so um, this, this sort of Marxist you know, infiltration, they've realized and recognized that um, if we can divide the church and if we can infiltrate the schools, then we can sort of control the populace. And they, they aren't going after you know, boomers with this messaging. <laughs> They're going after millennials. Yes. They're going after Gen Z yes. because that's where they can start. You know, uh, they're happy to play the long game with this. And so I think that there are, um, you know, this, th- there's, there's influential figures and there's organizations that are putting dollars uh, into, you know, into church denominations, into, uh, um, you know, schools in order to begin to lobby and push for these ideas to kind of become normal, you know, uh, everyday components of their curriculum and materials. And I think it's happening on both fronts right now that we're seeing this. I'm so glad to hear you say that. It is it's so funny. I um, haven't even, Chris, had a chance to talk to you about this yet, but our daughter was talking about going to a summer camp and it was a, you know, Christian summer camp style type thing, um, just a week. And I went online and I started looking at it and I asked a friend, you know, who's parents had sent her as well. And I said, Hey, I'm just, I'm trying to find like a statement of faith or just trying to find something. And she, you know, she, she didn't have one. She was like, hmm, I don't know. We hadn't really, you know, we hadn't really thought about that. And it, it again made me think it's everywhere. It's, it's in youth groups and it's, uh, you know, Sunday school. And it's in these camps that are designed to theoretically bring kids closer to Jesus, better, you know, stronger in their faith walk. And they're, they look really great on the surface. They've got all kinds of activities, all kinds of fun, but I could not find, you know, what, what would be the devotional moment? Where's, where are the, you know, quote unquote church activities? Where are the things and what are you going to be teaching my child while he or she is at this camp? And it was, it was hard to find. And I think it's one of those where parents really need to be in that eyes wide open space because it looked great and sounded great, but there was something in it that I thought, well, if I can't readily find this information about how you're going to be teaching my child about Jesus and Christianity, I'm not sure that's the place for her. Yeah. And Lucas, I would just add, you know, there's been a lot of news on polling lately. Um, I I have several different polls in front of me about young people and their belief and faith. Um, the, The headline from the Wall Street Journal is a positive one. It says the surprising surge of faith among young people. Um, And it says, uh, according to this uh, particular survey they're citing in the Wall Street Journal, about one third of 18 to 25 year olds said they believe more than doubt the existence of a higher power. Uh, They attribute the increase in part to the need for people to believe in something beyond themselves after three years of loss. They attribute this kind of general sense of there's something bigger than us and needing something bigger uh, through COVID. However, interestingly, and I think this goes back to what you were just saying, what Christine was mentioning 
At the same time, many young adults say they feel disconnected from organized religion mm-hmm. over issues like racial justice, gender equity, and immigration rights. Belief in God or a higher power does not necessarily translate into church attendance or religious affiliation. So it's it's, <laughs> it's very positive in one sense, but it's like when they, when you talk about belonging to something or um, generally participating, mm-hmm. they gravitate toward this Marxist ideology over attending worship, Lucas. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, there's almost this resurgence of what of you know what can really be called nothing other than paganism, and and in many ways it is uh, you know uh, we're seeing people become more spiritual. You open up TikTok, and it's very common to find you know on a live stream platform, uh, and you could say the same about Instagram or some of these other platforms. Mm-hmm. You will find people who call themselves Christian witches, and they'll be live streaming and talking about their faith. Now, they don't follow a biblical worldview, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, but they, they take certain elements. It's, it's what I call—I I, I deal with this in my book, I call, in, in Woke Jesus, I call this um, a modifiers or theological hitchhikers to the faith. <laughs> so you'll have somebody that, that will take some element of this thing called Christianity, but then they will add to it Marxism, or they'll add to it some form of neo-Gnosticism, uh, or some form of paganism, or some form of witchcraft— and they create this hybrid religion, and they'll call it Christian witchcraft, or you know, uh, Christian paganism, or Christian Gnosticism. And so they have this sort of amalgamation of their faith, and they're able to compartmentalize it in such a way because they no longer believe, most case in most cases, that the Bible is the authoritative and errant word of God. So it's very easy for them to go, well, contextually that passage doesn't apply to me that deals with sexuality or gender or marriage. I can just sort of cross that one off because that was just dealing with a very specific time in history in a specific place. Or we can't even trust that passage because, you know, Paul was a chauvinist and we can only <laughs> trust the words of Jesus in red. And so, you know, there, there's just sort of like the, the rules of logic aren't there anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for anybody who's been trained with a classical education, you have certain un- things that you understand about logic that, you know, you can't look at the text of Scripture and pick and choose what you want. As C.S. Lewis said, you know, Jesus is either, you know, a liar or a lunatic or the son of God. And so, you know, we, we, the Scripture does not give us the option to pick and choose it, because as a book, it says that it is all God-breathed and useful for correcting, teaching, you know, training, rebuking, you know, under righteousness. And so we, we don't have this, this logical, philosophical choice to pick and choose, but those rules don't matter to, I think, this new generation and this new movement that's uprising. And, and they have become a very loud voice in the process, and, and, and they've, they've sort of redefined those rules and sort of rewriting that history in the same way that we've had that revisionist history to the Constitution. We're now seeing that revisionist history, you know, really have a, a, an overlay of that, of the Scripture itself. So in summary, it is important for all of us, and this has been a consistent theme throughout the year that we've done the show, Lucas, as we advocate for Christian school and Christian education— uh, particular homeschool is different because that's you know individualized. But uh, as you talk about Christian schools, remaining on guard is critically important. Mm-hmm. Just as it's important to be on guard in your youth group and in your church and listening to the the, the pastor from the pulpit speaking the inerrant word of God and reading scripturally. Uh, Christian school hanging the name Christian school above the door, uh, unless you're vigilant, that that really could be just as easily compromised. People should always keep that in mind. And let me say this maybe even uh, uh, more direct, just because somebody says the name Jesus 
doesn't mean that they are preaching the Jesus of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, in my book, I outline you know everything from the Jesus of uh, Black liberation theology, the the Jesus of Aryan Christianity, the Jesus of 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 uh, you know the the sort of uh, critical queer movement. You know, we see diff- we see the term and the name Jesus used multiple times, but the, those are not the biblical Christ, and so. It's not enough to just say, do you believe in Jesus? You have to say, which Jesus do you believe in uh, to really make sure that you're in a safe place? What a crazy place that we are in as a culture. <laughs> well, like, and it's, Jesus it's, it's is everywhere. Jesus, right? But it's, not, apparently not. I think what's sort of deflating, and I'll ask your pastor to close, just give us, you know, I, uh, we're not to despair. We're to be hopeful mm-hmm. people. But it right. does, it, we do feel surrounded. You often feel just swallowed. You feel like... Good grief, it's at the church, it's at the youth group, it's in my kid's school, it's, is there anywhere I'm safe, Pastor, you would say? Yeah, so I, look, I am an optimist. I, I believe very much that we need to not pull away from civilization. We need to push in. And, and you know, in my book, uh, Woke Jesus, I talk about uh, this, this model. We're not trying to build a theocracy where the church runs the nation. We got away from that in England and for a reason. What we're really trying to create is is what could maybe be better called a theonomy, and that is where the, the the gospel rises up from among individual lives that are transformed within communities, and it starts impacting every single area of society. Uh, this is what transformed Rome. This is what transformed uh, pagan Europe. This is what ultimately you know shaped uh, the American experiment to start with. And I believe it's what we need in order to see uh, a resurgence of faith and really revival in this country. And I think it's possible. Uh, Just because God wins in the end and the church is redeemed does not mean the church in America always thrives. So we have to be vigilant. We have to to make sure that we educate ourselves on these things. I wrote this book, Woke Jesus, in order to, you know, help people understand wokeism well enough that they could recognize it and refute it when it shows itself uh, to them. And so we, we can't just stick our head in the sand. We have to we have to dive into these topics, you know, and really prepare our heart that we can always give an answer to everybody who asks of us. That's amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time today. If people wanted to go and start searching, you know, looking things up that you've been connected with, other books of yours, your current book, what would be the best place for them to go find that up? Yeah, absolutely. We I actually just received word today that uh, the book, my book, Woke Jesus, uh, just uh, hit the bestseller status nice. on Amazon in awesome. the first category. So we're very excited to hear that. So you can get the book uh, wherever books are sold, uh, Woke Jesus, um, The False Messiah Destroying Christianity. If you want to find out more about me, you can also head over to lucasmiles.org. That's L-U-C-A-S-M-I-L-E-S dot O-R-G. Uh, and I'm you know, interested in booking me for an event or something like that. All that info is there. And then lastly, right. I'll say to any pastors that are out there or content creators in the Christian space, maybe you know they're writing Sunday school curriculum or something like that, um, we have a website called AmericanPastorProject.org, and this is a place where pastors and, and Christian content creators uh, can go and they can make a commitment. They sign a statement of, of a commitment to biblical orthodoxy, and they really sign up that they are going to stand against wokeism uh, in their pulpit or within their digital pulpit that they have. And we're seeing really an army of uh, um, uh, you know just people who are committed to seeing wokeism push back rise up in this. We already have several hundred people that have signed this, and uh, that's growing around the country. So lots of resources there at AmericanPastorProject.org. And that's for any pastor, any content creator out there. That's uh, basically a pledge to align themselves with the effort. Yeah, 100%. And also, I would say that for the average person looking to see if your church is woke or not, 
you can go there and see if your pastor has signed the statement. Now, if they haven't signed the statement, it might just be because they haven't heard about it. Mm -hmm. But this is a great litmus test to take to them and say, hey, check this out. You know, it's based upon biblical orthodoxy, 2,000 years of Christian history. It should work for virtually any denomination, you know, and, and encourage them to sign it. Hey, have you signed this yet? Check it out. Ask them what they think about it. And if they won't sign it, it could be a sign that you might be in a woke church, and it might be a good uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, a fleece to put out there, if you will, to really see the character <laughs> of, of the, the ministry that you're in. Lucas Miles, you are an uh, inspirational guy, and you articulate this stuff so well. Thank you for being so vigilant. Thanks for being sort of the town crier uh, <laughs> and the guardian, uh, the keeper of the inerrant Word of God. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate you having me on, and uh, always, always good to talk to you guys. What a whole lot of amazing, just food for thought yep. in that. I was thinking a lot. I don't know where your head was going in that, but I was thinking a lot. I know we've mentioned it before. Uh, the year that we sent both of our sons to something called the Philadelphia Project uh, out of Philadelphia. Um, mm-hmm. And we <laughs> got the phone call from our oldest who said to us as we were getting ready for them, you know, pick them up and bring them home. And he said, I have a real quick question, Dad. What's what's uh, white privilege? Yeah. <laughs> and you shared that with me. And we sat them down and we talked to them. And when you talk about like how we talked earlier, like, you know, 12 year old Liam, I, our boys were young. They were probably 13, 12, 13, 14, right at that, because it didn't, you know, maybe 13, um, sitting down and having those conversations and having them continually. But that was, an, you know, a mission project they were part of through our church. A church outreach to help yes. people in need. Yeah. Which they both loved and is doing and was doing great things. I don't discount what their mission was. I don't discount what they were about, but the message that they were receiving alongside the fact um, of, of just the basic Christianity and, you know, the widows and orphans and helping all, you know, being there for people and yet being told you need to be, you know, you're part of the problem, this white privilege idea as we were there raising money and sending them on our costs. Like that's, that's really problematic, and it kept kind of going through my head. As and I think that's maybe why I'm on guard a little bit more now, yep. and clearly for good reason. As he's talking about the different ways that this ideology has definitely infiltrated churches all over, and we know that. Yeah, to be I fact. mean, like what we're learning is just like uh, school. Church is not something you can just kind mm-hmm. of you know take the it's <laughs> Jesus take the wheel. Yes, but what Jesus? I mean, right. even it's it what woke Jesus. Jesus? Right. You know what Jesus is right. I mean, like you, I I think. I, I wish, I know you wish, we all yeah. wish uh, we could put the kids on the bus and send them off. We all wish we could walk through the front door of our church and not have to work at it. I wish I could know that when I'm sending them to a church camp that it is actually going to be yeah. biblically based. That's like, what we wish. That's, yeah. But we, we, we don't live in that world. We no. don't live in that so world. It is we live important. in a world where 12-year-olds have to go address right. their school board. So, so I think yeah. it is just important, you know, I, uh, just to continually be questioning. I, I hate to say on guard, but I think you have to be. And I, but I think to vigilant. be to be vigilant. That's yeah, vigilant and, and prayerful, yeah, aware. Yes, and above so, all else, prayerful. With that, we hope that you are vigilant and prayerful all the time. We hope that you will <laughs> give us uh, your reviews. We hope that you'll email us and let us know what your thoughts are about this show or any show. Or if you are someone that you think would make a great guest, or you know someone you think we should talk to, please reach out. We have a couple of ways to do that. You can contact us through Facebook and Instagram at Making the Leap Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Making underscore the underscore Leap Podcast. You can contact us via email at hello at makingtheleappodcast.com. Any of those will be great opportunities for you. And with that, we will see you next week right here. 
Making the Leap is a podcast presentation courtesy of the Herzog Foundation. Please rate and comment on the show as well as subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we'll see you next time on Making the Leap.